What a glorious, glorious, glorious truth that we sing about, isn't it? Very serious thing to take the kingship of Jesus upon your lips, to declare that Jesus is our king. It means that he is sovereign over our lives. And that just doesn't mean that he's in control, but it means that he has all authority over us. Very, very significant words that we sang, and um, we agree uh, wholeheartedly with them. So I am so excited uh, to be back in the book of 2 Corinthians with you. Uh, If you're not there, please turn there in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we are going to be finishing um, our study on a topic that I called the God of comfort in a world of pain. The God of comfort in a world of pain. And what we're going to look at today is how we are to depend on this God and how this God delivers us. How we depend on this God and how He delivers us. Uh, Let me begin then by looking at the passage we'll cover today. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 to 11. This is uh, what the Word of God says declares, beginning in verse 8, it says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we, could not tr- so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead." who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and He will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, if you notice, as I was reading along, there's a lot of specificity in this passage, isn't there? Through this, by this, through these people, by these people, all of these conjunctions and all of these prepositions that are very important to the operations of what is going on here. Uh, I am convinced that in this passage, I ran out of time. The buzzer went off, and it was time to close my studies and to prepare for church But I tell you, what I was discovering here was that Paul gave us a manual of how the providence of God operates in the lives of His children through the prayers of His people. And it's just a magnificent manifestation, a manifesto, we could say, of providence and how it works. Uh, Let me pray, and then we will begin looking at it. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before You today, and we confess our absolute need of You. Father, in the spirit of the Apostle Paul in this passage, help us to set our hope on You. Help us to annihilate all self-sufficiency in our lives. Help us to do away with what Paul calls in Colossians chapter 3, that which is still earthly in us. Help us to rid ourselves of the old man and his prideful, haughty, self-sufficient, self-adequate ways of thinking. And help us, Lord, like little children, like a newborn babe, 
fully dependent upon the nourishment of its mother. Help us to fully trust you, to lean our whole self upon you, and to cast ourselves into your care, knowing that you are such a faithful creator. God, illuminate the passage of Scripture to our minds. We need to be taught by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a, uh, a dangerous doctrine that I know that you know of. It's called the prosperity movement. And obviously the prosperity movement is the exaggeration of what we know in the Bible of God's blessing a person, of God protecting a person, of God restoring a person, of God blessing someone with health or wealth. or None of those things are evil in and of themselves, right? I mean, Abraham was a wealthy man. Job, by, seemingly by all respects, was a wealthy man, and God did restore him to his health. But we know that the wealth and health prosperity gospel is f- flawed. It is, it is heretical. It is aberrant because it stresses that God always wants you to be healthy, always wants you to be wealthy, and that it's always God's will for you to be in that condition. And if you ever come down with some sickness or illness, or if you ever encounter any kind of financial uh, uh, crisis, it is because of your sin, it is because of your folly, it is because you lack faith, and therefore it is quite a twisted and perverted presentation of the gospel. But I can tell you this, that there is in the church today, maybe not even because of the prosperity movement, but because of evangelicalism uh, uh, in general, I believe that there is infiltrating in the church today a doctrine that doesn't necessarily spill into the excesses or the gross abuses of the prosperity movement. But let me tell you this, that that church after church after church is guilty of hiding from its people the true nature of the Christian faith. That God does not always will for His people to be healthy, to be wealthy, to be in a good and safe and secure position in life. No, brothers and sisters, there is times when, like Job, because of no fault of your own, it is the will of God that He afflict us, that He decree and that He allow certain trials to come right into our lives. And that owing to nothing that you did wrong. So that when trials come into our lives, we don't automatically, our knee-jerk reaction should not be, oh, what did I do? I'm being chastised for something I did last week. Well, that may and may not be, but brothers and sisters, if you are not awakened to this truth by today, I hope you will be by today, that trials are part of God's Bible promise book. (laughs) You won't find it in many of those promise books, but it's true. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. James teaches the reality that we should consider our trials not in the way that many have, considering them as punishment or affliction, but we should consider our trials an occasion for joy 
knowing that God is at work in our sanctification, Peter says, do not be surprised when trials come upon you, as if something strange is happening to you. Oh no, brothers and sisters, I know we live in a world that tries to, that tries to mirror a Disneyland existence where everything is going right, right? You see the commercials, you see the advertisement, you get an iPad and you're in heaven, right? And everything is fine and the world is just so good. It is, it is brilliant at making you think that this product that we're presenting to you and all the allucrements that go with it, that this product will fulfill you and complete you. And that once you have, you know, the latest iPhone, iPad, whatever, you will be finally complete and happy, pain-free, absolutely satisfied, guaranteed, money-back guarantee every time. But you and I know through experience and more importantly through what the Word of God teaches that that is not true of the Christian life. That in this life we'll have tribulation. That in this life we'll be tested. That in this life God is doing a work of conforming us more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And conformity to the image of Christ is the goal. Be not deceived. Conformity to Jesus Christ is God's goal in your life. Why? Because God, ever since the Garden of Eden, has been on a mission, an indomitable mission, to restore the image of God in man. And where do you see the image of God brought to absolute perfection? Jesus Christ, the only man of whom Scripture says He is the image of God. When you see Jesus, you are seeing the perfect manifestation, reflection, representation of the image of God. You are seeing God in human form. You are seeing God incarnate. You are seeing the glory of God in the face of a man, Jesus Christ. So it makes sense then. If God is on a mission to conform us and transform us more and more into the imago Dei, the image of God, the acone of God, the image of God. It makes sense, therefore, that you and I be made to be more and more like Jesus. That's the mold, right? Like a cookie cutter, right? These houses, these communities out here, sometimes I refer to them as cookie cutter homes, right? It just plop, 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 plop. They all look the same. That is the cookie cut, the mold that God is trying to plop us into. And Paul says to the Galatians, chapter 4, he says, I am in labor pain over you, church, until what? Until Christ is formed in you. That's the language of the Imago Dei. That's the language of the image of God. Until you properly reflect God in your life, I will not be done working on you. And brothers and sisters, this text of which we are looking flies and smacks right in the face of what so many Christians are being told and what so many Christians are buying into today. Not even in a prosperity church necessarily, but brothers and sisters, in a, what I like to call the Jefferson church. Remember? Benj uh, Jefferson. He, he's, he's famous for the Jefferson Bible. He took a pair of scissors, right? And he started cutting out sections of the Bible he didn't like. That's what's going on today. I'm convinced of it. We hide from our people the ugly aspects of the Bible. You know what's so sad about that? I read an article from CNN recently where, uh, where 
a guy was writing on the, on the, uh, on the fact that he's so surprised how Christians water down the Bible. He, they water down the Bible. They don't want to talk about the explicit, grotesque, sexual, violent, the, the evil, the detestable, the abominable passages in the Bible. They want to water the Bible down, make it more palatable for the people. And here is an unbeliever telling the church, why are you watering down your own Bible? Why are you hiding from people what happened to Job? Why are you hiding from people the horrors, the terrors of hell? Why are you hiding the lake of fire from people? Why are you hiding the incestuous relationship that Noah had with his daughters and the man in 1 Corinthians had with his stepmother? You see, we have become so censored, right? We, the church has been censored, Lord willing, not in this pulpit. Lord willing, not in our church. In our church, Lord willing, we will declare the whole counsel of God for our good because it is all for our good, brothers and sisters. Hear the word of the Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is through anustas. God breathed it out, and guess what, it's, guess what it does? It is profitable for reproof. It is profitable for correction. It is profitable for instruction in righteousness. So this text right here that magnifies so deeply the suffering of the Apostle Paul is profitable for you and I. And we dare not create a fake, make-believe, fairy tale vision of who Paul really was. Paul was a broken down, suffering, probably scarred, beyond belief, man. I mean, how many times can you get beaten after all? How many times can you get whipped after all before your scars are just too ugly to look at? Look, this is real life, brothers and sisters. What happened to the Apostle Paul is a reflection of of what God does with a man, with a woman, who is fully and totally yielded to Him. It doesn't mean that you will always go through these trials. It doesn't mean that you will suffer just like Paul or just like Job. But one thing is true, that a real Christian from the very beginning of his life counts the cost to follow Christ. I was so riveted this week reading Jonathan Edwards and the way that he described the nature of true conversion, and the way that we're talking about conversion today, that, wow, what planet was Edwards from? He talks about self-annihilation, self-detestation, seeing yourself as an odious, detestable creature in the sight of God. Oh, no, 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 we don't want to talk like that anymore because it'll make people feel bad about themselves. And Well, you know what the society says nowadays. Well, the point is to get people to feel good about themselves, not bad about themselves. What did Jesus say? Unless you hate your life in this world, you will lose it. You have to learn to hate your life in this world, brothers and sisters. And we are looking here at the example of Paul, of a man who did not, as Revelation says, did not love his life unto death. He didn't try to protect it. He didn't fear laying down his life for the sake of Christ, but was willing to do it. Willing to do it. I want to look at three aspects of this trial of Paul. Number one, 
we have to consider the absolute overwhelming nature of this trial. And the reason why is because the language is so excessive here. It's so graphic. Look at verse 8. For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond strength so that we despaired even of life. Three, phase, three phrases are there for us to sort of get a, a handle on what was going on with Paul. What was he thinking? What did he feel like? What was the experience like? He gives us three distinct phrases to help us with this. Now the very first thing in terms of the context, notice he says, we don't want you to be unaware brethren. Meaning there was some ignorance on the part of the Corinthians. They didn't understand this trial. Maybe they knew about it, and most commentators suggest that they knew about this trial, but what they didn't know is just how debilitating the trial was. They didn't understand how absolutely hindering the trial was to him. And this will make sense in the larger context if you go, especially you begin to go into verse 15, and he starts talking about why he was delayed to, in coming to them. It makes sense then that they should understand just how bad his trial in Asia was. Now, what was this trial in Asia? We don't know, okay? I, I, I went through 20 commentaries to try to find some dogmatic voice on this issue because I hate not knowing, you know what I mean? I need to know what the text says and, and what it's referring to, but we don't know. We don't know what this Asiatic trial was. Maybe he was referring to the riots that happened in Ephesus in chapter 19. Maybe he was referring to the persecution he received from the Jews. Maybe he was referring, as one reputable commentary, Murray Harris suggests, he was referring to a reoccurring physical malady that he went through in his trials. Or, as Charles Hodge suggests, it is a combination of these trials, right? Have you ever been in a season in your life where you've got trials coming? What do we say? When it rains, it pours, right? And we refer to that time as a trial. Oh, man, you don't know what kind of trial I just went through. But you're referring to different things that took place all at once, so to speak. Perhaps that's what's going on with Paul. Certainly, when you get to chapter 12 of this book, you know that Paul was bombarded by numerous trials. So regardless of what the trial was, that's not Paul's point. That is not his burden here. That's not what he's trying to get at. He's trying to get them to understand the nature of the trial. Look at the first phrase. He says, we were burdened. That's the first one. Meaning, there was a heavy weight, a load that we were meant to carry. We were weighed down. Something is the word, uh, uh, the word implies here. Something was pressing down upon him. Something was pressing down on Paul. He was weighed down. There was a heaviness on him. And that's where the whole trial began. The trial began by bearing the weight of some affliction, some tribulation. And if you would, there's almost even a progression here. First he, under, first he introduces the burden of the trial. Then he introduces the physical aspect of the trial. And then lastly, he will tackle the mental aspect of the child, the mental toll that it took on his life. You know that Paul referred to the whole to our whole life as one big burden? <laughs> you ever feel like that, right? We can identify with Paul. Second Corinthians 5 4, he says, while we are in this tent, in this body, while we are in this earthly existence, he says, we groan, we are being burdened. It is a burden. 
I know. I know how it is. Listen, we're in a world that is subject to decay. The, our, outer man, our outer man is perishing, right? We live in a world where, as Paul says, death is reigning. Death is reigning, brothers and sisters. Set not your hope in this world. What does, Paul, what does, what does the Apostle John tell the churches of Asia, churches of Ephesus? He says, he says, he says the world is passing away and the lust thereof. This is a fallen, fading system that we're involved in here. But look at the second phrase. Not just was there the initial burden of the trial, but then he goes on to talk about the overwhelming nature of the trial. He uses this word, we were burdened, and then he says, excessively, excessively, and he links it together with this other word when he says, beyond our strength. That's interesting because he uses a compound word here, the first word excessive, which means which, which speaks of the overwhelming nature of this burden. And he uses the, the same little preposition, pair, which means beyond, okay? He says we were excessively burdened. And then he says, again, we were beyond our strength. It was beyond our strength. He's trying to paint a picture for these Corinthians that this was such a trial that it was beyond his ability to deal with. It was further than his reach could grasp. It was beyond his reach. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't fix it, right? I don't know about you. I like to fix everything. Something's wrong. I like to fix it. TV not working right. I want to fix it. Something broken in the house. I want to fix it. My computer's not working right. I want to fix it. My wife's not doing good. I want to fix her. And usually the word there coming back is, I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to listen to me. How many of you guys have heard that, right? Um, But yes, it was beyond his reach. If it was a physical malady, Paul is saying there's no medicine for it. If it was persecution, Paul is saying there is no escape. If it was a combination of trials, Paul would say he can't rationalize his way around it. It is an all-consuming trial, right? This is a very close parallel then to what James says in James chapter 1. That you know what? Trials come in various shapes and sizes, right? He calls them various trials. The word there is variegated, meaning many colors, All sorts of shades and colors, shapes and sizes to our trials, right? They surround us, don't they? Matter of fact, James uses the word there that Jesus used in the Gospels when he says, when you might come upon thieves. In other words, they might surround you. That's what trials do. They come upon you like a thief. And the next thing you know, you are surrounded by these trials. That's where Paul was at. He was so overwhelmed because he was so surrounded by this trial. Now look at the next phrase. That's the physical toll that it took on him. It was beyond his strength or beyond his ability is how you can translate that. And then thirdly, it says that he despaired even of life. These are not throwaway words that Paul's using here. These words are very intentional. I believe these words were chosen specifically to communicate a specific aspect of the trial. He uses the word despair, exapero. And the word means, literally, it means to be uh, 
to be perplexed. Or, as one reputable lexicon says, it means to be at a psychological loss. You're you're just baffled by the trial. You're mystified. You don't know how to rationalize around the situation that you're at. You want to talk about being overwhelmed, brothers and sisters. Physically, he could do nothing about it. Mentally, he could barely cope with it. And that's where he is. And that's why he says, we despaired even of life. We were perplexed. John MacArthur brought this out, and he said this is a compound word. And that's right, it is a compound word. It contains the word that means passage, paros, way, road. There's There's a way, there's a route, or there's a resource, there's a recourse. There's some way to go in this trial. That's what we do in trials, don't we? We comfort ourselves with saying, God will make a way. There's a way. We'll find a way. Everything will be okay. Uh, Something will come up. Paul is saying, it didn't seem like anything could come up. Nothing could deliver us. from the. doesn't seem like anything's on the horizon that will help us. It was absolutely gloomy. The outlook was grim. There was no way out. No escape. What caused so much perplexity is that it was so life-threatening, this trial. This this brings us to the next point because he's not done talking about how exquisitely vexing this trial was and particularly how life-threatening it was. Look at verse 9. And the second point then is so closely connected, right? The trial, even though it was overwhelming, it was purifying. That's the next point the purifying power of Paul's trial. It was a purification. It was for purification. Look at the last, uh, or look at verse 9 there, his last word on this this life-threatening trial. He says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You see that? Amazing language again. You know what he's saying there? There was a sentence of death within ourselves. That's very, that's very deep language. It doesn't get more powerful than that. He's saying we had an internal, existential, subjective notion as deep as you could have it, right? That there was a death sentence over us. That there was an official word. That's actually what it means. It means there was an official statement made. An official declaration. As far as Paul was concerned, he was a dead man. That's what he's saying. It's silver bullet time. It's over. It's flat line. It seems like this is the end. And so Paul quickly launches into the purpose, what we could call the purifying purpose of this trial. He says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So amazing, isn't it? This was the purpose of Paul's trial. Paul did not, even though he was an apostle, he had not mastered faith. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. That is a point of great encouragement for you and I. I mean, just think of the concept, trusting God. If you go to a bookstore and you see a book on trusting God, right, you might think, 
well, that's not really as profound as systematic theology, right? But it is profound, brothers and sisters. It is profound depending on the stage of life that you're at. And depending on what, in relationship to what is it that you are asked to trust God. This is at the very pinnacle. This is the climax of trusting God. And what it means to trust God, brothers and sisters, it means that Paul was being asked to trust God with his very life's breath. Even though he wasn't on a deathbed that we know of, he was being asked, like Stephen, to trust God to be able to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul's own Gethsemane hour, we could call it, where like Jesus, Paul had, Paul was ready or Paul was being purified so that he would be able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Paul saw this trial as very productive though. He saw this trial as working for a purpose. He saw this trial as sanctifying. He saw this trial as the path to greater holiness, as the path, as we began talking about, for greater Christ-likeness. He saw this trial as a promotion. That's what Matthew Henry says about certain trials. Listen to this juicy little quote that I found by Matthew Henry. He says, extraordinary afflictions are not always punishments for extraordinary sins. Sometimes sometimes it is the trial of extraordinary graces. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. It is a way to move forward in the Christian life. It is a gain. Paul stood to gain something from his trial. So what's the promotion? What was it? It was that for Paul, there was still an element of self-reliance in him. There was still an element of trusting in self instead of trusting in God. Trusting in self instead of trusting in God. Do you know that God is so concerned with your sanctification? He doesn't want you to trust in yourself. That takes glory from God. That takes credit away from God. That takes a, a, a relationship that you're supposed to have with God. You, that, takes, that inhibits your sanctification. It always amazes me how through the whole history of redemption, the entire history of redemption, God is always trying to teach His people this very principle of self-reliance and doing away with it not trusting in yourselves. Take Jesus, for example. How often Jesus had to teach His disciples this, right? Don't look to yourself. Don't see yourself as adequate. Don't rely upon yourself. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 10, verse 20, when the disciples, after having done incredible ministry for the Lord in the power of the Spirit. They come in rejoicing and that Jesus comes in with this this blam, right? This rebuke, this, this word, this admonition. He says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Don't be haughty. Don't be puffed up because you've performed demon expulsion. He says, rejoice 
that your names are written in heaven. (laughs) Amazing. Rejoice in that. Stop puffing yourself up. Stop thinking that the resources are in you. Stop thinking that this great power has to do with you. It wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, your name would not even be written in heaven. Jesus told the disciples, after spending years and years of discipling them, pouring into them, teaching them, instructing them, ministering with them, before the Spirit came, He said, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. You see, they were inadequate to receive the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Without the aid of the Spirit, they were devoid of the necessary understanding that resulted in the New Testament. They did not have the proper illumination. They did not have the proper knowledge, the proper understanding, the proper learning. They were utterly dependent upon the Spirit's work. And then, last of all, I have to use poor Peter, right? He's always bearing the brunt of so many lessons in the Christian life. But really, is it any wonder that Peter himself in his epistles teaches us so much about what it means to trust God, to entrust your soul as unto a faithful Creator? After all, God, lesson after lesson after lesson, was, was just extracting every last ounce of self-dependency and self-reliance upon Peter. Peter, in Matthew 26, verse 35, declares, I am ready to die for you, Lord. In John chapter 13, he tells the Lord, You will never wash my feet. (laughs) Right? God forbid that you should ever serve me. I will never let you... Peter's apparent humility was nothing but hidden pride and self-sufficiency, and self-reliance, until finally at the very end, after Peter is brought face to face with just how loathsome and how odious, to use Jonathan Edwards' language, and just how absolutely bankrupt he was after denying the Lord Jesus Christ, even with cuss words, brothers and sisters, Jesus finally got it across to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And first there's an interaction back and forth Lord, you know that I love you. Until finally, the third time he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Finally, Peter, as it were, surrenders all attempt to try to impress Jesus and simply says, you know all things. It wasn't until he came to the point of acknowledging Jesus as absolute sovereign lordship over his life that Peter was ready and fit ministry. These are the types of things that God is trying to work out of Paul. Out of Paul. Trust him. Peter says, to quote the whole verse, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God, they shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we cannot impress God with who we are, with what we have, with our own resources. We can't impress God with what we are able to generate in our own power. No, brothers and sisters, God desires absolute self-reliance. And Paul, being brought to the point of taking his last breath, as it were, 
God was trying to teach him. Just like at this very moment, Paul, and this very hour, at this very season of your life, where you are being pressed into a position where you must utterly throw yourself and thrust yourself at the mercy of God, the lesson to be learned is that you ought to have been living your entire life that way and not let it get to the final moment of your life. The proper object, therefore, of Peter's faith is not himself, but it is in God here called the God that raises the dead, right? And the argument is an a fortiori argument, from the lesser to the greater. Paul is arguing this way. If God is able to raise the dead, then, then He is obviously able to deliver us, right? If God has this resurrection power residing in Him so that He is able to even raise the dead ones, that's the original Greek. That he could raise the dead ones. Can't he not deliver us? You see, this is the all-sufficient grace of God at work here. Now we see that we see this resurrection power at work, I think, in two ways. Number one, by the fact that God is able to do it because of who he is. And number two, by the means through which God chooses to accomplish this. And this brings us to our point on prayer. And this is the third point. The role of prayer in Paul's trial. We saw the overwhelming nature of the trial. We also saw uh, uh, the uh, purifying power of the trial. And here now, a very important part. The role of prayer in Paul's trial. Amazing, fascinating the way that Paul sees the role of prayer in our lives. I pray that we learn something about this. You know that prayer is a, prayer is a common victim in the Christian life, isn't it? It's the first thing to go, right, when we are, get going in our busy lives. I remember listening to a lecture where a pastor of 25 years came to speak to uh, seminary students who were about to graduate and enter the ministry, and his word was this, brothers, guard your prayer, because in the ministry, prayer is the first thing to go. You have to study. You have to counsel. You have to do outreach. You have to minister. You have to preach. And too many times, prayer is sacrificed on the way to good things. But my friends, prayer is absolutely critical, as we'll see from this very text. Look at verse 11. He says, You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through your prayers or through the prayers of many. You see that? I hope you're looking at all the little interaction there. There's a lot of it. It's quite perplexing. But we know that the thought of deliverance is what launches him forward. He uses the word deliverance, this idea, three times. And then in the third time, he uses it to link the exposition, listen now, from the basis of the deliverance, that's what we've looked at, God's resurrection power to the means of the deliverance. That is, through the prayers of many. You see that? So that both, both 
the, 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 the reference to prayer, your prayers, and then the reference at the very end there, through the prayers of many, that is the instrument that God uses. The prayers of His people. And then He even makes it more specific. The prayers of the many. Now this is interesting. It's probably not brought up in many translations. But He uses the word persons. You see that? So that thanksgiving may be given by many persons. Who are the persons? The persons are the people that have been praying. And as a matter of fact, he, does, he, doesn't, he uses a strange word for persons. He uses prosopon, which means face. One commentator suggested Paul is envisioning here faces that are lifted up to God in prayer and in praise and in thanksgiving because of what he has done. I thought, wow. We should incorporate more of that into our prayer. So many of our prayers, what do we do? We have our elbows on our knees, heads down. We're looking down, right? That's good posture. I'm not trying to give you a a legalistic posture in prayer. I'm just trying to say, maybe we should lift our face sometime in our prayer meetings and just simply give thanks to God. Let God see your face, as it were, as you give thanks to Him. And these are two things, brothers and sisters, that this kind of prayer produced in the church. It produced thanksgiving, and it produced the necessary grace for the trial. We could say prayer produced the proper thanksgiving in the trial, and prayer produced the necessary grace for the trial. Oh, that's what prayer does. Prayer Not only does it give aid, it also produces praise. It produces praise to God. We could say that the the movement here is prayer, providence, and praise. You see that? Prayer, providence, the working of God, and praise. That's the way that it will work. You see that right here. The church's prayers... For Paul's deliverance in the midst of this trial, and even for future trials, the way that verse 10 ends, and then God's working through the church's prayer. Where do you see the, the, the where do you see God working through the church's prayer? In the favor, what he says, the grace or the gracious gift that is bestowed upon him in reference to his deliverance. See, Paul saw the deliverance that came from the prayers as a result, or he saw that as a gracious gift. God did not have to rescue Paul from this trial, okay? He could have let Paul die right there in Asia, right there in that trial, but he didn't. He, he, he reserved him, he reserved his death for a later time. Oh, he had it all planned out, right? He was going to be poured out, he tells Timothy, as a drink offering, He was going to be poured out as an act of worship. Be assured of that. He would be martyred, ultimately. He would lay down his life, ultimately, but not now. Right now, in this situation, Paul saw this temporary deliverance as an evidence of the gracious gift of God in his life. Grace! God delivered me from this trial. Grace! That's all it was. It was just a gift. And it was a temporary, momentary gift. 
give him thanks, give him praise for it. So we see the prayer of the church. We see the working of God in this bestowal of this beautiful, gracious gift of deliverance. And then we see the giving of thanks. That's the way it works. Prayer, providence, and praise. Prayer, providence, and praise. And my prayer is for us to operate that way. And you know what? We do operate that way, right? So when I read this, I thought this is reflection of the universal experience of the Christian life. Hallelujah. Praise God that it's a reflection of what I've already been doing. Right? Maybe not perfectly, but I've experienced this to some measure. And so it was an encouragement. I am in the river. I am in the stream of apostolic experience. I am in the same Christian experience as the Apostle Paul. Praise God, what an encouragement to know that God will work in this cycle with these movements in my life. Prayer, providence, and praise in my life. And this happens over and over. You see this sort of threefold dynamic over and over in Paul's writings. Same sort of basic scenario. There is a cooperation of prayer, there is a deliverance from danger, and then there is a resultant attitude like thanksgiving or joy. Turn to Romans chapter 15, maybe for a final uh, example of this and just to tie it all together. It is absolutely conclusive, therefore, brothers and sisters, that God uses prayer. We know the corny slogans in the world. Prayer works, right? Try prayer. I don't even know what they are. I should have had them down before I try to even attempt that. But you know what I mean. People put the power in prayer, Right? The world puts the power in prayer. It's the prayer, the prayer. It's all the prayer. It's not the prayer. You notice how the world does that? They love to put the power in spiritual things, but they don't want to put the power in God, ever. I was reading another article on George W. Bush and his faith. And uh, this writer was insisting on the power of faith in George Bush's life. And it was amazing. So what I did is I went back and I circled all the places where faith was personified. Faith was personified to the level of God. As I started tracking what he was saying there, faith is what delivered him from his alcoholism. Faith is what delivered his mar- rescued his marriage. Faith is what strengthened him in the hour of 9-11. I thought, where is God in all of this, Right? Now, you can't talk about that because that's not politically correct. But I assure you that that is where all of the resource lies. It's in God. It's not in His gifts. It's not in His gifts. Now, look, look with me at this last passage here. Romans 15, verse 30. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, here it is, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Amazing. There, the uh, NAS being very literal to emphasize the repetition of me, 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 right? Strive with me, for me, in other words. (laughs) It's amazing. Look at that language. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you strove in prayer? When do you strive in prayer? We need more striving in prayer, right? As much as we love to strive in our studies, 
as much as we like to strive in our hobbies, as much as we like to strive in our families for whatever cause, when do we strive in prayer? In prayer. Verse 31 says, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. So there is the there is the rescue. There is the deliverance. There is the providence at work. Remember, prayer, providence, and praise. Or here, as he'll go on in verse 32, so that I may come to you in the joy or in joy by the will of God. See the joy and no doubt with the joy came the praise and the thanksgiving and the thanks to God. This is, the, this is the pattern of God's working in our lives, brothers and sisters. Whatever burden you are in, whatever's burdening you, whatever challenge is in your life, whatever trial, affliction you're facing, go to God in prayer and let God through His providence work it out in your life. And when He works it out, return in praise. That is about as simple as I can make it. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, today we, we understand at a very minimal level, Lord, that we are filled with self-sufficiency that you need to work out of us. And God, like the Apostle Paul, I pray that we would come to the realization that all of our resources lie in your ability, what you're able to do, God. Help us to look to you in that, in our evangelism. Help us to put our trust not in our method, not in our zeal, not in our activity, God, but in our God. Help us to put all of our hope there. Like the Apostle Paul says, set your hope on the one who raises the dead. Father, we know that if you the resurrecting God, if you are able, therefore, to raise the dead, how much more, God, are you able to raise us up and out of our afflictions and out of our trials? And, oh, Lord, may we never fail to give you praise. May we never fail to give you thanksgiving when your providence has been manifested to us and when we see your hand in it. God, I pray that we would never fail to give you the proper worship that is due your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.